Jerusalem lay in ruins. The great temple of Solomon destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant, the Israelites' most sacred object, the throne of God's presence on earth, missing. The king of Judah, exiled. His replacement, blinded after watching his sons murdered. King David's monarchial line was over. The kingdom of Judah was gone. The Israelite religion had collapsed. By the year 586 BCE, or shortly thereafter, it should have been all over for the people of Israel. They were beaten not by their longtime enemies, the Assyrians, but by the Near East's newest rising power, the Babylonians. Thirty years earlier, King Josiah had promised that by adopting his religious reforms to centralize worship at the temple in Jerusalem, to reject idolatry, and to hold loyalty only to Yahweh, Jerusalem would stave off the disaster that had befallen its sister kingdom, Israel. Instead, Judah suffered an even worse catastrophe. By all rights, this should have been the end of it. Yahweh was defeated, Jerusalem sacked, the holy treasures lost, the monarchy fallen, and the Israelites scattered. History suggests that Yahweh should have gone the way of other ancient gods who fell to a stronger power, lost to history. Within a generation or two or three, the people of Israel should have been no more, absorbed and assimilated into the Babylonians. But that is not what happened. Instead, this period that we call the Babylonian Exile, which lasted just around 50 years, produced such an extraordinary explosion of creativity that we're still living with it today. This great crisis sparked a remarkable innovation. The necessity of the exile forced the people of Israel to remake their religion to stay together as a people. What the Israelites came up with was monotheism. By the end of the exile, they were no longer Israelites, they were Jews. There are two big takeaways from the Babylonian exile. The first is the creation of the Jewish diaspora, the term for the Jewish communities which live outside of the historic land of Israel. This was a new condition, and how they adapted to it gives us our second takeaway, the development of monotheism as the core of the Jewish religion. Today, we're getting into what happened. How did the end come? Next time, about the theological and cultural implications and how it all led to Judaism, Welcome everyone to the 125th episode of Jew I Don't Know. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and here we go. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. When King Josiah was killed in battle in 609 BCE, his death catalyzed the end of the kingdom of Judah. The four kings who succeeded him, three sons and one grandson, were fairly incompetent to meet the chaotic politics of the moment. We can't blame them entirely. Judah was stuck in the middle of a hot war between the Babylonians in the east and the Egyptians in the west. When Egypt seemed to have the upper hand, Judah aligned with them. When fortunes changed to the Babylonians, Judah switched allegiances. And these allegiances were not necessarily voluntary. Yet neither the Egyptians, nor especially the Babylonians, appreciated such shape-shifting. But the kings of Judah were desperate to save Jerusalem. The first of Josiah's sons to succeed him was forcibly ousted by the Egyptians after only three months. They appointed in his place another son, Jehoiakim, whom they imagined would be a more compliant vassal. And for a while he was. 
But the year 605 brought one of those world-changing battles, like Hastings or Gettysburg or the Battle of the Bulge. The Egyptians and Assyrians joined together against the Babylonians at a place called Carchemish, which is today located along the border between Syria and Turkey. It was a decisive victory for Babylon. The Assyrians were permanently destroyed, never to rise again, and the Egyptians hightailed it back to Egypt. It was the Babylonians' big coming-out party onto the world stage, and after the battle they kept going, heading straight for Judah. Jewish history is replete with enemies of the Jews, those who have oppressed and persecuted them throughout the ages. There are a few slots reserved for the supervillains, the absolute worst of the worst, Adolf Hitler, of course, and a few Roman emperors make the cut. In ancient times, the title undoubtedly goes to the Babylonian leader, Nebuchadnezzar, the worst enemy the people of Israel have yet faced in their history. After the Battle of Carchemish, King Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful ruler in the world. The biblical writers infamously named him the Destroyer of Nations. So with Egypt in retreat and Judah left to fend for itself, King Jehoiakim switched allegiances from the Egyptians to the Babylonians. He too has gone down in Jewish history as a particularly bad king. At best we can say he was doomed by circumstance. At worst, an idolater who didn't much care for his father's religious reforms and gave Judah a hard shove along the road to ruin. The Bible reports that he did what was displeasing to the Lord, just as his ancestors had done. He exacted heavy taxes on the people to pay hefty tributes in gold and silver, first to Egypt and then to the Babylonians, and this earned the king of Judah the wrath of one of the most prominent men in the kingdom, the great Hebrew prophet named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was by then an old hand at this prophesizing business. He had been around since the early days of King Josiah. He was a priest from a town not far from Jerusalem. He was at first a reluctant prophet, but soon found solid footing in preaching against the usual things. Idolatry, social injustices, and the failures of the people to keep to the covenant with God. All of which, he warned, would lead to their punishment by the hand of God. But there was a crucial difference between him and other prophets, especially Isaiah. Isaiah, remember, also preached that the Israelites would face punishment. He said that, ultimately though, Jerusalem would not be destroyed. Instead, Isaiah had said, a remnant would be preserved to ensure that the Davidic line would continue on in accordance with the covenant God made with King David. But Jeremiah had a different take. There was no hope for Jerusalem or the monarchy. Both would be destroyed as punishment for Israel's sins. Remember King Manasseh, he of the child-sacrificing, idolatrous ways? No matter what Josiah or anyone else did to reverse those sins, Manasseh's crimes were so great, the people had strayed so far, that punishment was assured. And when King Nebuchadnezzar showed up to surround Judah, Jeremiah knew exactly what, rather who, the instrument of God's wrath would be. As you can imagine, this did not endear Jeremiah to pretty much anyone, and when he wasn't foiling conspiratorial plots against him, he was dodging King Jehoiakim's goon squad. But his prophecies had to get out somehow, so Jeremiah turned to a trusted friend and confidant, his scribe, Baruch ben Neriah. 
Since 1975 of our era, two clay seals have been found in Jerusalem with Baruch's name on them. One even had a fingerprint, which some historians speculate may have belonged to Baruch himself. Baruch ben Neriah is probably the most famous scribe in Jewish history. It was he who followed Jeremiah around, jotting down the prophecies we have preserved in the Hebrew Bible today. So when Jeremiah, hiding from the king, needed someone to spread the doom and gloom in Jerusalem, he had Baruch stand up before the people in front of the temple and read off a scroll about just how bad the punishment was that was coming for them. The message was twofold. One, don't bother trying to fight the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar is acting under the power of God's divine justice, and things will be much worse if Judah resists. But secondly, have hope. Because God's punishment would end, and it would be the Babylonians who would eventually suffer, and the people of Israel freed once more. King Jehoiakim, of course, hated this and had the scroll burned while Baruch read it. At first, the king aligned with Nebuchadnezzar. But after a few years, the Babylonians suffered a setback and Jehoiakim switched back to the Egyptians, an act which Nebuchadnezzar rightly considered an act of rebellion. In response, the Babylonians raised an army and laid siege to Jerusalem. The year was 598 BCE. In the year 598-597, with Jerusalem under siege, King Jehoiakim of Judah did something unexpected. He died. Was it natural causes? Assassination? We don't know. His son and successor, Jehoiachin, made a brief go of resisting Nebuchadnezzar, but threw in the towel after three months. At this point, the prophet Jeremiah was jumping up and down screaming, I told you so. The Babylonian Chronicle, an historical account discovered in the 1800s, tells of Nebuchadnezzar's victory. He encamped against the city of Judah, meaning Jerusalem, and on the second of Adar, he captured the city and he seized its king. A king of his choice he appointed there. He took its heavy tribute and carried it off to Babylon. This was a watershed moment in Jewish history. It marked the very beginning of what became a central core of Jewish identity, exile, and diaspora. Indeed, it was a condition that lasted from this moment in 597 BCE all the way to the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. And even today, of course, millions of Jews live in the diaspora, the term we use for communities living outside their ancestral homeland, outside Israel. The Hebrew word for exile is galut, and as we'll see, it required such a profound shift in cultural and theological attitude that it utterly turned Israelite religion into the essential Judaism that we more or less have today. For 700 years, the Israelites have been living in their homeland. Now, for the first time, many of them would not. Diaspora began here, in 597, 2600 years ago, when Nebuchadnezzar seized Jerusalem and began draining it of its leaders. In exchange for swinging open Jerusalem's gates, King Jehoiachin and his royal house had their lives and their cities spared. They were deported off to Babylon, along with Jerusalem's military, business, and creative elite. Some 10,000 people in all were sent off as captives. The temple's treasures were looted, and Nebuchadnezzar appointed a new king, Jehoiachin's uncle, King Josiah's last remaining son, Zedekiah. He would be the very last Israelite king 
the last heir of David on the throne that stretched back 400 years. Today in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, you can find the towering, rebuilt Ishtar Gate, which archaeologists discovered in the ruins of Babylon in the 1930s. Its iconic bright blue glazed bricks and yellow animal reliefs were just the smaller portion of the gate, which stood over 50 feet high and itself was just one of eight processional gates which led into the city. The cuneiform inscription left by King Nebuchadnezzar is also preserved. He writes, I placed wild bulls and ferocious dragons in the gateways and thus adorned them with luxurious splendor so that mankind might gaze on them in wonder. Nebuchadnezzar built the gates shortly after the arrival of the Israelite exiles, and the city they encountered absolutely astounded them. It was greater than anything they had ever seen, more impressive than anything they could have imagined, easily ten times the size of Jerusalem. The great 20th century American writer and rabbi, Chaim Potok, wrote, The people of Judah wandered about the city, gazed at its power and wealth, sat on the banks of the river, remembered Jerusalem, and wept. One of those who wept was the prophet named Ezekiel, amongst this first group of 10,000 exiles in 597. He wasn't in Babylon, but in a nearby city called Nippur. He lived in the Israelite section of town, a neighborhood known as Tel Aviv. Some 2,500 years later, that name would become the Hebrew title of Theodore Herzl's novel, Altnoyland, one of the foundational texts of modern Zionism. That book title would then give its name to the city in Israel, the point is, even for a city founded in 1909, the Jewish past reaches incredibly deep here. Ezekiel preached much the same thing as Jeremiah, that Jerusalem's destruction was inevitable now, there was nothing to do but repent for the just punishment coming for the city. He's one of the more fantastical prophets, deeply lyrical, darkly magical, beset with divine visions of vibrant colors and fiery lights, speaking always in riddles that even today are difficult to understand. The people sought him out in this neighborhood of Tel Aviv, this man who had been born into an elite priestly family in Jerusalem and whose misery in exile was compounded by the death of his beloved wife. This first wave of exiles from 597 were shocked, of course, but they still had hope, believing that in short time the Babylonians would be defeated and the Israelites allowed to return and restore their monarchy. But Ezekiel insisted that wasn't going to be the case. Still, as much as the exiles longed for home, life actually wasn't horrible in Babylon. For one thing, the Babylonians did something that turned out to be absolutely crucial. They allowed the Israelites to stay together. This was in stark contrast to the Assyrians when they sacked the Kingdom of Israel back in the 700s. Their policy was to deport and scatter the Israelites, to mitigate any efforts at organizing rebellion and to absorb them away into Assyrian culture over a few generations. That's likely how the ten northern tribes disappeared from history. But the Babylonians didn't do that. Ezekiel and his compadres were not only allowed to live together, but the Babylonians also granted them some communal autonomy, self-government under Israelite elders and family patriarchs. These two things enabled the Israelites to preserve their national identity within their own ethnic community, which is why they later emerged from the exile still a distinct Israelite people. 
And remember, the 10,000 Israelites exiled to Babylon were the elite of society, and they were put to work. Most of the exiles ended up in agriculture, leasing and working land to grow a variety of crops. A Babylonian text even mentions by name an Israelite named Shelemiah as Nebuchadnezzar's palace gardener. Skilled craftsmen were shipped off to Babylon to help build Nebuchadnezzar's monumental palaces and temples, and quite possibly the Ishtar Gate now on display in Berlin. Jews didn't build the Egyptian pyramids, but they may very well have built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which some myths suggest were constructed by Nebuchadnezzar. Babylonian records even show that some of the exiles became rich as merchants or traders or bankers. Near where the Ishtar Gate was discovered, archaeologists found, incredibly, a ration card on a clay tablet allocating food to the king of the land of Judah and his family, which scholars assume to be the exiled King Jehoiachin. So all in all, things could be much worse for the exiles in Babylon. Yet back in Judah, things were indeed about to get catastrophically bad. When the Babylonians exiled King Jehoiachin, they put in his place Zedekiah, his uncle, assuming that a king of their choice would be compliant. Zedekiah was not. He spent the next 10 years raising or joining rebellions against Nebuchadnezzar. Although Ezekiel was off in Babylon, Jeremiah was still in Judah, and he was still angering the establishment with his pronouncements of doom and devastation. Resistance was futile, he insisted, as Nebuchadnezzar had been sent by God to punish Judah for its sins. Zedekiah had Jeremiah tossed in jail as the Babylonians closed in. Nebuchadnezzar once again lay siege to Jerusalem, this time in the year 587, ten years after the first. A year later, in 586, starving and thirsty, Judah gave up. The Babylonians broke in and ran riotous through the streets. The Hebrew Bible remembers the event with great fire. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down the house of every notable person. The entire Chaldean force that was the chief of the guard tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. A few weeks ago, Israeli archaeologists uncovered in Jerusalem an intact defensive wall from this era. So we know that the destruction may not have been as complete as the biblical writer claims. Nevertheless, archaeologists have uncovered layers of destruction from this time at many sites in Judah, as well as piles of Babylonian arrowheads near where the army burst into Jerusalem. It was enough to render the kingdom of Judah no more, and to traumatize Jewish history ever after. Zedekiah tried to escape the city but was caught. His sons were murdered before his eyes, and then he was blinded and carried off into exile. The line of David had fallen. The Babylonians set upon King Solomon's temple, raising it to the ground. It was then that the Ark of the Covenant, the Israelites' most sacred object containing the tablets of the Ten Commandments, disappeared from the biblical account and from history. We don't know whatever happened to it. I dug into this mystery back in episode 70. Jewish tradition marks this day as Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the month of Av, which is also the day that the second temple would be destroyed by the Romans some 600 years later. It's still observed as a day of mourning on the Jewish calendar every summer. The Book of Lamentations was written to commemorate and grieve the sheer loss of life and destruction wrought by the Babylonians. 
It is traditionally authored by Jeremiah, although it probably wasn't him directly, but still written by someone who observed the events firsthand. The Lord has laid waste without pity all the habitations of Jacob. He has raised in his anger fair Judah's strongholds. He has brought low and dishonor the kingdom and its leaders. In blazing anger he has cut down all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand in the presence of the foe. He has ravaged Jacob like flaming fire, consuming on all sides. He bent his bow like an enemy, poised his right hand like a foe. He slew all who delighted the eye. He poured out his wrath like fire in the tent of fair Zion. The Lord has acted like a foe. He has laid waste Israel, laid waste all her citadels, destroyed her strongholds. He has increased within fair Judah, mourning and moaning. Jeremiah himself was freed by the Babylonians and allowed to choose his destination. He chose the town of Mitzpah, just north of Jerusalem, where what remained of Judah's leadership gathered under the close watch of the Babylonians. But he didn't stay long. Unrest followed as the Israelites, who was appointed governor by the Babylonians, was assassinated. Jeremiah and the leadership fled again, not to Babylon, but to Egypt, where the prophet would spend the rest of his life. This was the beginning of an Egyptian Jewish community that lasted for 2,500 years until Egypt began expelling its Jews after the creation of Israel in 1948. Today it is thought that less than a dozen Jews remain in what is one of the oldest Jewish communities in the world. From Egypt to Babylon, the events beginning in 598 and going through 586 saw a great scattering of the people of Judah across the Near East. Numbers are hard to come by. It's been suggested that around 75,000 people lived in Judah at the time of the destruction. Around 10,000 may have been exiled to Babylon, and an unknown number went to Egypt and other places. We also know that significant areas of Judah were left relatively unscathed. Archaeological evidence reveals several cities without the kind of destruction layer that we find elsewhere, and the biblical sources are clear that probably a majority of the people were not exiled. Left in Judah were Am Haaretz the people of the land, the rural poor, who continued their meager existence what was now a small backwater of the Babylonian Empire. They would cling to their identity even without much in the way of leadership. Jeremiah reported that they continued to offer sacrifices at the ruins of the temple in Jerusalem. And yet going forward now, the general condition of the people of Israel is one of exile, diaspora, and foreignness, and it is this that will shape them. It is the diaspora who wrote of their exilic experience in what became the Hebrew Bible, and so it is the people like Jeremiah in Egypt and Ezekiel in Babylon who reformed the Israelite religion to satisfy the needs of the people living outside the land. They clung to the hope of their eventual redemption and wallowed in what had been lost. Their thoughts turned to Jerusalem, an expression that would live all the way down through Jewish history, until the state of Israel recaptured the city in 1967. The Israelites famously sang a song that became the 137th Psalm. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat, sat and wept as we thought of Zion. There on the poplars we hung up our lyres, for our captors asked us there for songs, or tormentors for amusement. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing a song of the Lord on alien soil? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue stick to my palate if I cease to think of you, if I do not keep Jerusalem in my memory, even at my happiest hour.
How can we sing a song of the Lord on alien soil? The collapse of Judah in 586 BCE brought about not just exile, but also a profound theological challenge. How can we continue practicing our religion without the temple in Jerusalem? Who are our leaders now that the monarchy is destroyed and the priests no longer have the temple? What communal laws should we follow? What do we make of our national god Yahweh, who brought this punishment upon us? How can we be redeemed? How can we preserve our national and religious identity outside our ancestral homeland? How can the people of Israel be the people of Israel without Israel? The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel had answers. It involved the reconception of God, an updated understanding of our roles as individuals, and a new system to mimic the ritual and communal obligations associated with the temple. What would soon emerge was an almost new religion, Judaism. That's for next time. As always, my website is jewidontknow.com, and my email is jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Heathrow. See you later.